First Kings. So back to the Old Testament. Uh, there are the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. Then comes uh, Joshua and Judges, and then the little book of Ruth, and then Samuel, first thing Samuel, and first and second Kings. I mentioned before that uh, Joshua, Judges, uh, not Ruth, but Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings uh, are considered to be the uh, the former prophets uh, by uh, in the Hebrew Bible. So. These are books that are speaking uh, to Israel of the faithfulness of God, but also uh, laying out uh, the charges that God has against them for their unfaithfulness as he's about to uh, exile them uh, into uh, Assyria and Babylonia. So uh, you have a sermon notes page there in the bulletin. You can uh, turn there and uh, follow along if you'd like this morning. Uh, But 1 Kings is our uh, book this morning as we go through the whole Bible, uh, one book at a time, roughly one book at a time. Um, I, I'm not quite sure if we're going to go to 2 Kings next Sunday, just uh, NFYI, uh, because uh, you'll, if you read 1 Kings, you'll see a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, they are contemporaries with what's going on here in Kings, so I uh, might sprinkle a few prophets in uh, for the next few weeks. We'll see. Uh, but this morning, 1 Kings. Uh, and this book transitions us from David, from David uh, to his son Solomon, who is his successor. And then from Solomon to the divided kingdom after Solomon, uh, where we have the kingdom of Israel in the north, and then you have the kingdom of Judah in the south. So this is where things are a little bit complicated. Sometimes uh, we, we can mess up. We say Israel, we mean the whole of the people of God. But yet, uh, after Solomon, Israel is the north, uh, and Judah is the south. And so the focus of First and Second Kings is, very easily, the kingdom. The kingdom. Kids, what's a kingdom? We talk about the kingdom of God. We talk about uh, here the kingdom, you know, the kings and so forth. What is a kingdom? We live in a country, but what's a kingdom? What's a kingdom? Well, it's pretty easy. Think of it like this. There's a king and he has a kingdom. What's his kingdom? His kingdom is his people and the place where he reigns. So, A king has people and a place, so keep that in mind uh, as we go through. So here the story is of the kingdom of God through the reigns of David, Solomon, and then after that uh, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, uh, and they have a kingdom to rule over, meaning people and place. And so uh, we come then to 1 Kings, and as I just mentioned again to reiterate, the, the theme here is the faithfulness of the Lord in the history of Israel's kings, despite their increasing unfaithfulness. So it's all about the faithfulness of the Lord. Really, we can say the whole Bible is about that. But first king is about the faithfulness of the Lord in the history of Israel's kings, despite their increasing unfaithfulness. We saw David was somewhat unfaithful. We'll see here a little bit of Solomon's unfaithfulness. And then we're going to see, especially in the north, where all the kings are unfaithful. And in the south, amongst Judah, some are quote-unquote, the good guys, and some are, quote-unquote, the bad guys. Some are faithful, some aren't. We need to hear this message today, don't we? We need to hear this message that the Lord is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of the world, the various nations and kingdoms in which we live, and especially even us as sinners. But we need to hear this message today that the Lord is faithful, uh, and He was faithful then in the history of Israel's kings despite their increasing unfaithfulness, Uh, Everyone today, just speaking of our time and place, everybody, whether a 
you are registered as a Democrat or a Republican or an independent or you just don't care, uh, you know this to be true that uh, pretty much every single one of us and our neighbors and our friends and our family members and our co-workers and our entire country has the lowest esteem, uh, at least they tell us this, that we've ever had for the governments, for those who govern us and who lead us and for the direction of our country. There's corruption. There are broken promises left and right. And there are dereliction of duties that are so plain for everybody to see, uh, we don't even have to mention them. Yet the Christian message of the gospel to our world is that Jesus Christ is the faithful king. So when we read these Old Testament stories, yeah, there's a, it's about those guys and those kings and that time and that place way back when. But the message is still the same. Jesus Christ, the, the anointed savior of the world, he's the true king. And so whether we're talking about David, the man for God's own heart, or Solomon, the one who built the temple, or all the various kings in between, it is the Lord who is the faithful king. Amen? The Lord's faithful. And so we want to hear that uh, this morning. And we, we pick up here in 1 Kings where 2 Samuel left off. And we have the last days of David. So just notice there in the first, uh, first chapter, in the first half of chapter number 2, uh, you have the last days of David. And the story begins kind of strange. David's an old man. Uh, and I'm, I'm 49, uh, and, I, and I feel cold all the time. I, I embarrass Sadie all the time because I'm always bundled up with blankets. So uh, we get older, and I don't know what it is. Well, we, just get, we just get cold. Even Larry from New York is wearing, uh, wearing warm layers of clothes today, even though we're here in Southern California, right? So uh, we, we start to feel our age. We start to feel cold. And David is getting old, and he's cold, right? They can't keep him warm, the story begins. And so uh, what is their remedy? Well, they, they bring him a woman. They bring him Abishag the Shunammite to snuggle with him, basically, and to keep him warm, right? It says that he doesn't know her uh, sexually, but uh, she's there uh, basically to keep him warm uh, in his bed. Uh, now, why does that mention? Well, he's getting old and he's about to die, but while he's, they're concerned about the king's comfort, all the while his fourth son, Adonijah, see that in verse 5 and so forth, his fourth son, Adonijah. If you go back to 2 Samuel 3, you'll see uh, his sons that he had in Hebron. And Adonijah was his fourth son. And all the while David is cold and they're trying to keep him warm and comfortable. They're bringing him, this woman, to keep him warm uh, in his bed. Adonijah, his son, is conspiring with two men. Joab, whom we've heard of before, who fought all these great battles for David. And Abiathar, the priest. They are all conspiring to set up Adonijah as the king, as the true successor of David. Most likely, it's because David's first three sons are dead. So back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 3, his first four sons, he has, uh, he has Amnon, who was killed by uh, his other son, Absalom, in that rebellion, and then Absalom dies in that rebellion. Then his second son, in 2 Samuel 3, verse 3, Kiliab, we're not told anything else about him, so we just assume that he's died. In other words, Abiath, or, uh, Adonijah, Adonijah is the oldest living son of David. And so he takes it upon himself that he is now in the position of the firstborn, and he's going to rule. This leads to a crisis. David hasn't named his successor. 
Adonijah in this conspiracy. They are themselves taking matters in their own hands. And so the news comes uh, and it takes even uh, the prophet Nathan again, all the way from back in uh, the story of Samuel and Bathsheba. It takes them to come to David to sort of snap him out of his doldrum there in, as he's feeling cold in bed. David, your son Adonijah is, has set himself up as king. You need to name your successor. And did you not already tell us in private that it was going to be Solomon? That's what this whole chapter 1 and 2 is all about. And so David has to publicly proclaim and anoint Solomon. That's in chapter 1, verse 28 and following. He has to anoint Solomon as his successor. Uh, and then he gives Solomon a charge. Notice there in chapter 2, uh, verse 2 uh, and following. He charges Solomon with what to do. How to be a king when David dies. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Meaning, he's, I'm about to die. Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, etc., etc. So the charge is what? Solomon, obey the Lord. Follow the Lord. Seek the Lord. And how is Solomon to do that? What does the text tell us? To follow David's, David as Pope and his traditions? His unwritten rules? No, follow the, the words that are written in the law of Moses. Notice that. Walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. Where are those things found? As it is written in the law of Moses. So he charges Solomon to be this kind of a king uh, to who follows the Lord. And then we read at the end of our little uh, passage here, chapter uh, 2, verses 10 through 12, that David died 40 years of rule. Solomon sat on the throne, verse 12, of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. So God established his kingdom. God established his kingdom. But we might say that this is what God has already been doing, or he did, in the beginning. God established his kingdom in the Garden of Eden. Yet the devil infiltrates and he used Adam who was to keep out uh, anything like uh, what the serpent was seeking to do. But yet this serpent slithers in and, and, and uses Adam through temptation to desecrate, to topple the kingdom there in the Garden of Eden. And the Old Testament is really the project of God rebuilding his kingdom on earth. And so he called Father Abram to be the father of a new kingdom people. And he promised him a kingdom place. Remember I mentioned what a kingdom was. It was a king uh, who ruled over a people and a place. And so uh, in those stories of Genesis where God gave promises to Father Abraham, Father Abram, uh, he spoke of a people being like the sand of the, of the seashore, the stars of the, of the heavens. He spoke of the place, uh, every place where you walk, he told Abraham, all this land is yours. So a kingdom people and a kingdom place. And he saved his people, that people, from Egypt, and he brought them to that place, that kingdom place that he promised to Father Abraham. We saw this in the days of Joshua. They entered in, in the conquest. But it was defiled again in the days of the judges. And it kind of reaches its high point in the Old Testament in the time of David and somewhat in Solomon. So God is a God who is, a, is the king. 
And he has a kingdom. He has a people and a place. And he gives that rulership and that dominion to his people on earth. But yet we just destroy it, right? Like a little kid builds a little Lego set or he builds blocks and then we just destroy it. Our kids destroy it and get us all over again. That's God, right? God is a parent uh, of little children who like to destroy uh, nice things. So the Lord here is God and he's king and he's ruling and reigning and he's using David and Solomon to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, with the time of Solomon, I, w- I just want to focus on a couple of themes. And one of the themes is this, is that the, as Solomon is set up there in chapter 2, verse 12, as the king, his kingdom was firmly established. One of the things that we see in the rest of the story of Solomon is that the kingdom of God goes out. The kingdom of God goes out. We see this especially in chapter number 4. It goes out. It expands. It grows. And it does so in the sheer number of the people whom the Lord called to be his own. Now, up to this point in the story of the Old Testament, God had already made a promise to Father Abraham, again, that his people were going to be as numerous as the stars and the sands. But up until this point in the story of the Old Testament, all the way up to 1 Kings chapter 4, the only people being described as being so numerous as the sand and as the stars are whom? Any guesses? The enemies of God. The enemies. For example, in Joshua chapter 11, all the way back in Joshua, if we go back there, as we were there a few weeks ago, the Canaanites were, quote, like the sand that is on the seashore. That sounds just like God's promise to Father Abraham. But it was the Canaanites instead. Back in Judges chapter 7, the Midianites, the Amalekites, quote, were as the sand that is on the seashore. There's that promise again. There's that language again. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, which we were in a couple of weeks ago, the Philistines were, quote, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. So up to this point, the only people being described with that Abrahamic promised language are the enemies of God. But now in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 8, for example, the people of God are, quote, too many to be numbered or counted. So there's some good news here. And then here in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, verse number 20, they were as numerous as the sand by the sea. In other words, the Lord's promises to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, etc., etc., are being fulfilled in real time and in real space and in real history. God's promises, you see, are reliable. Amen? God's promises are reliable. Why are God's promises reliable? Why are his promises reliable? Because God is reliable. Because God is faithful. He can't deny himself. When he makes a promise, he puts his own reputation, his own existence, we might say, on the line. And so here the Lord is reversing the way things were going up to this point, where all these enemies were as the stars and the sands. But now God is reversing the order of things. He's, in a sense, performing a recreation. He's causing his people to be fruitful and multiplying, just like he told Adam and Eve to be in the garden. Uh, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And Solomon's kingdom is the staging area for the Lord as king and his kingdom on this earth. And as the people in place went out, 
so did the Lord's rest, His shalom, His peace, to the ends of the earth. That's what we see. And you read the boundaries of the promised land in the time of Solomon. They're expansive. It fulfills what God said to Father Abraham, what God said to Joshua, that it would be as far as the river Euphrates, all the way down to the river Nile, to the Mediterranean, and everything in between. That's the expansiveness as the kingdom goes out in the times of Solomon. Now let me just pause and say this, uh, just as a, as a little uh, pastoral application, a little pastoral refresher. Don't, when, you, when we hear this kind of stuff in the Bible, I want to say to you, loved ones, don't listen to all those cultural complainers today, and I am including myself uh, in that, and we, we, we so fixate and we say, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's never been as bad as this. If we could only get back to whatever time, whatever place, whatever era, whatever decade, you know, things would get better. When we read stories like the Old Testament and King Solomon and God's kingdom through Solomon expanding to the ends of the earth, it reminds us as Christians that Jesus is king. Didn't he send out his apostles? Where did he send the apostles to go? To all the world. To do what? To make disciples of all the nations. Now, has that work ceased? Is Jesus still king? Is the church still called to go out to all the earth to make disciples of all the nations? That work is still continuing, loved ones. Not just out there, but here. In us, through us. God, the king, Jesus, the king, will have a people as numerous as the sand and the stars, a multitude which no man can number, Revelation 7 says. And we continue on in this work of the Lord where he uses us and he's going to grow and to build his kingdom despite whatever culture we might live in, including ours. Amen? Don't forget this. Jesus is king. He rules. His gospel is going to win. He conquers in the end. Now, as the kingdom goes out, notice the kings are coming in. Notice in chapter uh, 4, especially there, uh, we have this, uh, this imagery in verse number uh, 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So as the kingdom goes out, the kings of the nations are coming in. The Lord blessed the nations as he said he would through Abraham and through David and now through Solomon. They came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. His wisdom was a gift from God. As Solomon himself would write in the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they were coming to hear not Solomon's wisdom, but the Lord's wisdom. They were coming to hear, in an Old Testament kind of a way, they were coming to hear Christ himself, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2 tells us. In fact, notice Hiram of, Hiram of Tyre in chapter 5, verse 1, he comes to Solomon and he blesses the Lord. The queen of Sheba herself came and blessed the Lord, chapter 10, verse number 9. All the nations came to hear Solomon's gift of wisdom, chapter 10, uh, verse 23 and following. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. 
Notice that. He excelled them all. So loved ones, if the nations came then, and if the nations and the peoples of the earth are still coming to the Lord to hear his wisdom as King of kings and Lord of lords, how much more so we who already belong to him, who already are his kingdom people, how much more so do you, do I need to come to the Lord to sit at his feet and to hear his wisdom and his will in his word? You see, they only long for a day, a day that is described of you. Where the apostolic writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. All these kings of the earth were coming to Solomon this pinnacle of wisdom, but they were coming through Solomon to Christ. How much more so we need to come to him to hear his word, to hear his will for us in our lives, to hear his wisdom for us in his wonderful word. Now, moving on to chapter 6, or moving back to chapter 6, if you've been uh, following along, this is really a high point of Israel's history. Notice in chapter 6 at verse 1, the reference here, everything is rooted in the Exodus and God's redemptive work in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Notice there the reference to the, to the Exodus, to redemption. Now David's desire we saw last Sunday in, in, in first, uh, or second Samuel chapter 7, his desire was to build a house for the Lord. What kind of a house? A real one. But the Lord turned it on its head and said to David, I'm going to build you a house. What kind of a house was that? A kingdom, right? A kingdom, a dynasty, a kingdom. Okay. So David wanted to build a house, a physical house. The Lord says, I'm going to build you a dynasty, right? A kingdom that's going to endure forever. And in fact, your son will sit on your throne forever. We saw that is, yes, Solomon, but not quite Solomon because Solomon dies. And so it's a prophecy of a son of David to come. Now, David wanted to build that house, but, he, but the Lord said you couldn't because you were a man of blood. And so this comes true in Solomon's day. So chapter 6 is all about that. And the temple was a greater tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent. The temple is a building. The tabernacle moved. The temple was permanent. And so it had greater glory. The, ta- uh, the tabernacle was covered up in these curtains of goat skin. We saw that in our study in Numbers a few weeks ago. Uh, whatever it is, a goat skin or whatever, a tachash is the Hebrew term. It's some kind of an animal skin. Uh, I think it's like the King James has the porpoise skin or whatever, but it's something just kind of plain. But the, the temple is a wonder of the world, covered in gold. The temple is the greater tabernacle. Now, some of the details point this out. We read in the story here, if you read it closely, the dimensions of the temple show that it's a greater tabernacle. The tabernacle, back in Exodus, we were told there that its measurements were 30 cubits long, it's about 45 feet long, uh, 10 cubits wide, 15 uh, cubits high. But if you read the story here in 1 Kings 6 closely, you'll see that the temple was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Do the math. 
How much larger is the temple than the tabernacle? Duncan, you're the mathematician here. Come on. <laughs> it's twice as big, okay? Twice as big. I'm not a mathematician, but I think my math is good. Uh, to say that if one thing was 30 cubits long and the other thing is 60, that means it's twice as long, right? So twice, twice. So every little jot, every little tittle of the scriptures is, is profitable for us for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, Paul, the, the apostle tells us. In fact, the tabernacle, or in the tabernacle, was the Holy of Holies, that, that, that one room that only the high priest could go in one day a year. That one room, the Holy of Holies, was described as uh, being 10 by 10, 10 cubits by 10 cubits, so a, a perfect square. The temple's Holy of Holies, no surprise, is twice the size, 20 by 20. The, ta- the temple takes greater glory than the tabernacle. In fact, the temple reaches back further than just the tabernacle all the way back, all the way back into the Garden of Eden. There are all these creational themes here in the temple language, the temple, uh, the temple description. Uh, look at chapter 6, verse number 9 of our, of our, uh, of our book, uh, 1 Kings. We read this, and this is a refrain here. So he, Solomon, built the house and finished it. Big deal, right? Look at verse 14. Solomon built the house and what? He finished it. Verse 38 tells us the house was what? Verse 38, chapter 6. The house was what? Finished. Chapter 7 opens up where Solomon is building his own house for 13 years and he finished, verse 1, his entire house. Then in chapter 7, verse 22, we read this. Thus, the work of the pillars was what? Finished. Are you catching the theme here? Right? It is finished. It is finished. Chapter 7, verse 40. Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. At the end of chapter 7, we read this. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did in the house of the Lord was what? Finished. Hear the Holy Spirit is saying in the, in the text. How many times does the word finished occur in the story of the building of the temple? It occurs seven times. Seven times. That's the number of, a biblical number of completeness. It's a creation number, isn't it? That's a creation number. And the language of finished is in fact the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 2 verse number 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Oh, and by the way, guess how long it took Solomon to build the temple? Verse 38, chapter 7, uh, verse 38. Uh, we read there. Oh, no, we don't read there. I don't know. It's, it's, in, the, it's, it's in one of these verses somewhere. I wrote, I wrote the wrong chapter down, loved ones. Sorry. You've got to trust me on this one. You have to go back and read chapter 6 and chapter 7 uh, that it took seven years. Oh, there it is. In ch- chapter 6, verse 38. Excuse me. Chapter 6, verse 38. Seven years to build the temple. He finished the work. That, that language of being finished seven times, that's being used there. That goes right back to Genesis chapter 2, verse number 1 of the creation. It took him seven years. Again, the number, number seven. Right? It's showing us that the temple is a, this glorious, not just greater than the tabernacle, but the temple is like a new garden, a new dwelling place of God on the earth. In fact, the, 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 uh, the materials that were used to build the temple in, in our story here, it's made of stone, then it's overlaid inside and out with cedars of Lebanon. 
Back in, uh, Psalm, uh, forward in Psalm 104, the Lord is praised for his creation. In Psalm 104, traces the six days of the creation and then the rest of God on the seventh day. And it says this in verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. These things that God made in, in, in his creative work, he uses those things to build his, his holy place, his temple, his dwelling place. Inside the temple, the wood, the cedars of Lebanon, had carvings of gourds and flowers and palm trees, verses 18, verse 29. Uh, the wood was covered both inside and out with pure gold, verse number 30. These are the kinds of things that were used in the, in the garden or being described in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 described there being gold in the land. But what's most striking about this temple was what it looked like. Not just the glory, but the actual architectural structure of it. And we've got to pay attention to the details. So if we read chapter 6, uh, we read about these details of how it was built. But let me just say this. Because it's a creational thing. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of God's kingdom upon the earth, his dwelling place upon the earth. Remember, as I mentioned before, that in the garden, or, or in Eden, that is, in Eden, uh, there was a mountain. Ezekiel 28, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God, right? Eden is this region, there's a little garden in it. But in that region called Eden, there was a mountain, the mountain of God, God's very dwelling place, God's temple, God's holy place, God's high place, we might say. But what does the mountain have to do with the, tab- uh, with the temple? Chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, if we can envision this, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says that there were three side chambers of the temple structure and each of them got wider as you went higher. In other words, if you were to draw a picture of the temple and these side buildings, the temple gets narrower as it gets higher. It gets narrower as it gets higher. It's built like a stepped pyramid, like a ziggurat, like a mountain, a physical mountain, a constructed mountain. Why? Because God wanted to show that he was dwelling like he did in Eden on the mountain there and like he did at Mount Sinai at the mountain there. He was still dwelling amongst his people but yet in a temple which was like a mountain. The purpose of the Garden of Eden, the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of Solomon's temple was that the creature, you and I as sinners, could have fellowship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. After Adam sinned, the Lord placed a cherub at the gate east of Eden to bar access. But no surprise, here in the temple, look in chapter 6, verses 23 through 28. In the temple, there were cherubim uh, engraved and embroidered all around on the walls. But the one thing is that, that is different is this. In the Garden of Eden, the cherub had something in his hand that barred Adam and Eve from coming back in. What did he hold in his hand? Sword, right? A flaming sword. A flaming sword. The temple's cherubim have no swords in their hands. In other words, the temple is like heaven on earth. It was meant to give access. It was meant to be a picture of a foretaste of 
re-entering that primal paradise, to enter God's presence like Adam and Eve in the garden. No, of course, only one man, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year so that the, the access was very, very, very restricted and limited. But it was also for the priest who went in. It was a way of showing that they, on behalf of the people, could access God, could come into his presence, and to have fellowship with him. Now, of course, as I've said before, throughout our, throughout our journey in the Old Testament, this ultimately comes true in the word becoming flesh and tabernacling amongst us. And we beheld his glory. That glory of God that was the cloud and the fire in the Holy of Holies upon uh, and above the cherubim's wings on the Ark of the Covenant's lid, that glory has come into human existence, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory, John tells us. The glory that they could not see then, we have seen that glory. Our temple is Jesus. Our temple is Jesus. Our access to God is Jesus. But there's trouble in paradise. So all this wonderful story of, of Solomon, all the glory of the temple, all the access and all the, all the beauty, all the wisdom, all the nations, all the kings coming to him and, and his kingdom expanding. Yet there's trouble in paradise. 1 Kings 11. Trouble in paradise. The seeds of trouble take root in the soil of Israel's great king. Notice chapter 11. Notice how it all starts. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now his list of women that he loved and his wives and his concubines, his harem, uh, sure it was impressive by, by, by human standards, the Pharaoh's daughter along with Moabite and Ammonite and Edomite and Sidonite and Hittite women, right? He, he had his choice. He had a thousand women to himself. Verse 2, he clung to these in love. There's trouble here in paradise. Didn't the Lord tell Moses to tell the Israelites way back when, for example, Exodus 34, to take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when you go in and lest you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters Uh, whore after other gods and make your sons whore after other gods, so on and so forth. Didn't the Lord say, don't marry unbelievers? Did he say that in the Old Testament? Yes, he said that. Well, you know, it's those women. It's always the women, right? The thorn in the sides. You know, those darn women, once again, are the ones who are tripping up God's holy men, right? Sorry, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't quite work that way. Husbands, turn to your wives and say those universal words, I'm sorry, it's my fault. (laughs) Why do I say that? Because Solomon, notice again, loved them. It's from his own heart. His own heart. It was his fault. He was responsible for his sin. And yes, we are told in verse 4, his wives turned his heart after other gods and he went on to build high places and these temples for all these gods, the Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, Molech. But if Solomon had obeyed the Lord, as David, his father, said, from the heart in the first place, and he would not have then been tempted by all these foreign wives 
to then love them and to be stumbled by them to build these temples in high places and put up with all this idolatry. The problem was in his own heart. We might put it in our terms, this is what happens when a husband doesn't lead in a godly fashion. It's his responsibility, right, to guard his own heart so that he's not led astray. We can't just blame, you know, well, it's the woman that thou gavest to me, right? That, that's, that's the age-old blame, but we can't do that. And so Solomon reverts the kingship back to being like Saul, Israel's first king. He multiplies an army, we read about. He has tons of silver and gold. He has all these wives and concubines, which the Lord had said, don't be a king like that. There was trouble in paradise in the time of Solomon. And after David's death and then Solomon's reign and then Solomon's death because of their sin, the house of God is divided. The Lord tears the kingdom asunder into two. The ten northern tribes are called Israel. They're led by Jeroboam. He was a servant of Solomon. This is in chapter 12. And then the, tri- the southern tribes of Benjamin, who are associated with Judah, are called the, the kingdom of Judah, and that's ruled over by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So Jeroboam to the north, Rehoboam to the south. And the rest of 1 Kings, all the way into 2 Kings, alternates between these two kingdoms, the north, Israel, the south, Judah. Now, spoiler alert, all 14 kings in the north, the Israelites, are all described as apostate, all of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not one of them is described in any way doing anything good. But Judah doesn't get off the hook quite so oppositely easy because they're a mixed bag. Some are, some are those who follow the Lord, some don't. Now, in the last half of chapter 12, it chronicles the time of trouble under Jeroboam. And his kingdom was characterized by consolidating power. And how did he do that? He used false worship. He used false worship. And he reasoned like this. See this in chapter number 12. If the, all the people of Israel travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make sacrifices, and Jerusalem, don't forget, is the capital of the kingdom of Judah in the south. If all my people travel south and make sacrifices, and they pray, and they make offerings at the temple where the priests were, they're eventually going to go loyal to Rehoboam in the south. And they're going to leave me behind. So a solution was false worship. First, he builds two golden calves. Remember back in the story of the, in the wilderness? How many calves, how many golden cows did the Israelites want Aaron to make them? Just a single one, that's all. And here, it's just, you know, just two. It's not, not, not a big deal, just two. But two golden cows are calves. And don't forget it was Solomon. It was Solomon, the, the king, and Jeroboam was his servant. It was Solomon who introduced worship of false gods. And so we can't uh, merely blame Jeroboam, but he, he's only following Solomon's example. So he builds two golden cow, uh, cows or calves. Secondly, he has those golden calves placed in two different places in his northern kingdom. So there are now two places of worship. There's Jerusalem, which is God's authorized place, but now there are two more places. In the far north of of Israel is is the town of Dan. One golden cow goes there, and then all the way down to the very bottom of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, in the city of Bethel, is a second 
golden cow and place for worship. So he's making it easy, right? He's making it, we might say in our time and age, seeker sensitive. It's very attractional to, uh, to the people of God. You know, if you can't get to this one, you can go to that one. And it's very visual, right? It's very visual, this golden cow. Third, he sets up a competing religious calendar. Instead of sending his people to the places of worship for the Feast of Booths on the, on the 15th day of the seventh month, which is what Leviticus 23 said, because he doesn't want them to think about worship in Jerusalem. So instead of the 15th day of the seventh month, that's when you're supposed to go to Jerusalem or go to the temple for the Feast of Booths, it was on the 15th day of the eighth month, the next month. Why? Verse 20, uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 33 this is all according to what, quote, he devised in his own heart. What he devised in his own heart. But didn't Jeroboam just want to worship the Lord? Wasn't he sincere in what he was offering to God and the people of God? Now, these, are just, these are how we respond, but these are clear violations of the second commandment. We are to worship God as he wants us to worship him. And the results of that or that one day Jeroboam's line, chapter 14 says, Jeroboam's line is going to be cut off. Chapter 14, verse 10. And all the males who die in the city on that day are going to be eaten by dogs. And all the males who die out in the country are going to be eaten by birds. And they're going to be exiled. Those left will be exiled. The seeds of trouble turned into weeds, thorns, and thistles, just like Genesis 3 described, and began to choke out all the life in the garden land that once flowed with milk and honey. But while all these seeds of trouble had been sown and reaped by disobedient man, the Lord, though, in all this, the Lord, don't forget, he'd already planted a seed, so to speak, in the garden, that one day this, 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 this champion was going to come forth, this king, this seed of the woman, was going to come forth and destroy and crush all this idolatry and all this false worship and all these bad kings. The Lord reminded Abraham of that promise. He told Moses again and again of that promise. He told David that promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of a king upon David's throne forever. And so even in the midst of all the sin, we see the unfailing love of God, his everlasting faithfulness and mercy revealed in the gospel. So in chapter number 11, uh, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says this, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. God always remembered his promise. That's what it's saying there. The Lord remembered his promise. He was going to send them into exile. He was going to send dogs and birds against them, armies against them. But for the sake of David, the promise of a king forever upon his throne, I will reserve for myself those whom I love. And so the northern tribes never return to the Lord. They're exiled. They go away. But there's a small remnant in the southern part of Judah. But even they're going to be exiled. We, we'll learn the prophets. But God's grace is so amazing that he would end the trouble of his people. Because when they would forsake him, he couldn't forsake himself, right? He can't forsake himself. As Paul the Apostle tells us, if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful. Why? He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 1 verse 13. If you are faithless, God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. 
And that came true, of course, in Jesus. But that promise is for you. That promise is for you. No matter how bad the world gets, and especially the church gets, God cannot deny himself. He's always faithful to himself and to his promises. Now, time's getting away, and so I'll just skip to the end, but uh, the story goes on to speak of especially the perilous reign of Ahab. The perilous reign of Ahab. There were 14, I mentioned, kings in the north. Uh, Ahab is the worst of the worst. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he did even more than any who had gone before him. Notice in chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Things got progressively worse. But Ahab stands out above the rest. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, right? The, the two golden cows, the two places of worship. They had a false priesthood. They had a false religious calendar. As if it was a light thing to do that. He did even worse. He made Baal the god of the Israelites, the, god, the storm god of the Canaanites was their god. He took a pagan Gentile wife. We all know her name, don't we? We all know her name, don't we? Right? She's, it's like a byword. Thousands of years later, Jezebel, right? But God is faithful. So go and read most of the story of 1 Kings, is this latter part. It's all about the, the reign of Ahab, his perilous reign. But God is faithful in all this. Just as in the beginning of creation, when there was darkness, God created light. And just as when humanity had become so utterly wicked that he sent a flood, he also, though, saved one man, Noah, and his household. Just as when there was so much idolatry amongst the sons and the line, the descendants of, uh, of, of Noah's sons, the Shemites, the Lord in mercy called out one man, Abram, and made of him a new nation. When the northern tribes were worshiping their golden cows that Jeroboam had made, the Lord did not forsake his people. And so he raises up Elijah the prophet. And he sends Elijah out of the land, out into the wilderness. Chapter 17, verse 3 says, east of the Jordan. And while he's there, he provides for him food in the form of bread and meat. So he's in the wilderness, and the Lord's providing bread and meat. What does that sound like? It sounds like Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? Manna from heaven, quail, meat from heaven. So in his zeal... Ahab was trying to turn Israel into the land of the Canaanites again. But in fact, he, sort of theologically speaking, turned it into Egypt. And so Elijah is sent out. He, is, uh, he go, undergoes an exodus himself into the wilderness. And he experiences, just like the Israelites did, out in the wilderness uh, of Egypt, uh, food and drink in that wilderness. And then he re-enters the land in chapter 18, just like with, with Joshua, in conquest to conquer Baal and false worship. 
The Lord says in chapter 18, Go, show yourself to Ahab. Re-enter the promised land. Go over the Jordan River. And upon seeing Elijah, Ahab says those famous words, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And the Lord shows His glory over Baal and His false prophets. He calls down the fire out of heaven. We know the story. Here is in the Old Testament already a picture of what Jesus Christ came to do. To bind up the strong man, hand and foot, and to plunder his house. When we hear people say you know, that, 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 that Jesus is, is resurrected, but He's not yet ruling and reigning. He's not king of the earth. That's the devil who is the king of the earth. And Jesus won't reign until he comes again. What do we say to that? Garbage. <laughs> Absolute garbage. Jesus says in Matthew 12, he came into the strong man's house, this world. He bound him already hand and foot, and he plundered his stuff. How does he do that? By the gospel, by saving sinners, by preaching the word and administering sacraments and saving sinners. He's come to plunder the strong man. Now that kingdom of God didn't fully come in the days of Elijah, we know. He goes back out in the wilderness, this time in fear of his life from Jezebel. And although the Lord had just shown great power over Baal, Elijah at, at Mount Carmel, Elijah cries out, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. What does the Lord say? Stop being so melodramatic. There's 7,000 other people who have not bowed their knees to Baal yet. Come on. I'm a God of grace. I keep my, I've kept my promise. I've reserved for myself a people for my own name. And so the story of the first, of first Kings reveals the gracious hand of the Lord. In the midst of great peril, and great trouble. And as he sends, especially Elijah, to preach, he tells him again that he's reserved for himself 7,000. And what's so revealing is this, is that it's the tribe of Judah that he especially, of course, has promised his Messiah to come from, his king to come from. The 10 northern tribes weren't the tribe of Judah. In other words, humanly speaking, they mean nothing. They mean nothing to the plan of God sending a Messiah from the tribe of Judah. Yet, here's the Lord telling Elijah in the north, I've reserved even here amongst the most, the most pagan of my own people, I've reserved myself a people for my own name. I've shown mercy and love. I'm merciful to whom I'm merciful. I'm gracious to whom I am gracious. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The God who's led us out of Egypt and our sins into the wilderness of this world between Christ's first and second comings, He provides us manna, water, and meat just like He did for Elijah, just like He did for the Israelites in the wilderness. He calls to you and to me today, to forsake our sins, to run from the bondage of Satan, to flee the Egypt of this world out into the wilderness where it's hot and it's lonely and it's desolate and it's not quite the 
land that flows with milk and honey that we all hoped we would have as Christians. No, but he calls you and I to come out of the world, and we come to this pulpit and to this table this morning to hear the wisdom of the King of Kings, and we come to receive his manna from heaven, his water that comes out of a rock, the very body and blood of Christ. He says to us who are those seven, like those 7,000 in Israel, feeling completely alone, forsaken even by God this morning. He says to you and to me that he's not forgotten us. He's right where he's always been upon the throne. He's winning souls. He's saving the world. He's going to come again to make it all new, to turn all things for good. But until then, come to Christ. Trust in him. Hear his word. Believe it. Receive this bread and wine. Embrace it. Take it. And know that God feeds your soul just like he fed Elijah from the very mouth, the very talons of a raven with bread out of heaven to feed your soul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and our merciful God, we praise you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask now that you would uh, fill our hearts with joy and thankfulness as we receive the Lord's Supper May we hold it in our hands and see it with our eyes and smell it with our noses and taste it with our lips, this bread and wine, which for us, by faith, is the very body and blood of Christ, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock that sustains us all the way to everlasting life. And so help us, Lord, and help us to be confident in you, our great King, in a dark and dying world, to proclaim the message that Jesus saves sinners. And all of God's people say, amen. If you take out the order of service sheet this morning, you'll see there uh, our next song, which is printed out for you, Bind Us Together. Bind Us Together is the, is the song. If you're able to stand, please do. Let's give God praise. <coughs>